Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah world who hasn't been through some kind of hell oh absolutely so well writing is a terrible thing right are we recording Mm -hmm. good let's just start with this writing is a terrible thing (laughs) (laughs) Uh, pretty much yeah what is wrong with us i you know there's obviously something inside of us that that will not allow us to have day jobs some something went terribly wrong in junior high school and there's some need to create an ego identity where we can feel you know our place in the world we must assert ourselves on the written word Mm -hmm. written page um you know, at, at two in the morning. You know, that, I, I was curious about that. Um, I have Bob Harris here. Uh, Hi, uh, Bob's <laughs> Bob's new fantastic book, which everyone should just shut up and go read, uh, <laughs> is the International Bank of Bob, uh, and it's all about microloans and um, the amazing experience you had uh, in finding out about these things, mm-hmm. uh, Kiva and these kind of organizations, and then uh, you know digging deep into it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But right. Uh, when did you become a writer? Um, I think probably when they cut the cord. Right. You know, I, 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 there's a certain mindset where you're just recording everything in your head and, okay, how do I make narrative out of this? How do I make sense out of this? What does this, what does this mean? (laughs) And I I remember even as a kid, you know, being like, um, you know, 11 and having an argument with my parents and mm-hmm. and thinking you know how now how do i how do i tell this story how do i remember this you know <laughs> and um uh you know so i I, and I think that starts really early i you know there's there's always the kid in school who's um you know narrating his behavior into a pencil or something like that like it's a microphone absolutely and, and those but you either wind up as a writer or you're on the street somewhere <laughs> you know i'm always curious about uh because that's absolutely right there is that that uh, narrative in the brain that's mm-hmm. constantly going on while you are living your own narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm always curious about, and we never really get to talk about it on this, but the, the process of putting that onto the page and trying to get that right. Because I think mm-hmm. that's the part we talk about, right, when we talk about writing and mm-hmm. the misery that, is, that can be writing, mm-hmm. uh, is trying to get that down the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, uh, presumably you, uh, you experience this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, what freed me up and what, what really helps a lot is when I was in my early twenties, I uh, studied improv in Chicago with Del Close and was taught all the yes anding and all of that. And that sort of improvisational onstage trust your own process, just let your instincts guide you. Um, you know, there's the word on, words on paper draft, you know, you just put things down. And a remarkable amount of the time, um, if I just, and maybe it's because I've been doing it now for uh, like a quarter of a century, but but as as time goes on, you sort of develop an instinct. And I would just throw things down on the page and just kind of like just slapping paint on the canvas. And a lot of times, thank God for word processing, you can kind of move a few things around and, okay, well, I sort of see the narrative shape here and and I can kind of pursue it. This particular project was I couldn't really do that as as, as much because it's um, a bit episodic. It's you know country by country, and it can never just be my own story. I'm a narrator, sure. and so people have to trust my eyes. They have to come along with me on the ride and and feel my emotions. But I, if the story's not about me, it can't be about me. It's about some of the world's you know poorest countries and how people are making a living and finding their way forward, and it's about them. So there's this real 
narrative um, contradiction that I'm fighting the whole time I'm writing the book. How much of this, how much of me should be here? And um, actually, yeah. and how did you work that out? Um, I asked Joss Whedon. Uh, <laughs> that's the actual truth. I, I uh, um, it was actually, I, it, it might've been when you and I met, um, oh, really? uh, that, that there was a get together we were all at. Mm-hmm. I was really struggling with it. I'd been struggling with it for like months. And then it, 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 as I was finishing up the research and finishing up the travel and I had all my notes and I had all my, uh, uh, souvenirs and stuff and things scribbled down in moleskin notebooks. And I'm trying to put this thing together. And I realized this huge contradiction between trying to, to take people to Nepal and have them look through my eyes, mm-hmm. and but but have it not be about me. And yet somehow I want there to be a narrative arc through the whole course of the story, so that people always can track where they are and where where our objectives are. It is a three act story. Mm-hmm. And so I I, uh, I asked Joss about it, and he didn't even there was he didn't even take a breath. It's a thing. I mean I've been thinking about this for weeks, <laughs> and and the dude just said you know look just you know tell your audience about it, just tell the readers, just be really upfront about the contradiction, invite them in, trust them, and go with it. And I was like, well, okay, I, I can try that. And I, I did that, and it worked really well. Mm-hmm. And I ran into him like six months later. I was like, dude, man, you totally opened up the book for me. Thank you so much. He, he didn't even remember. You know, it was just no. like this little piece of brilliance. Sure, you know, he sure. breathes the stuff. He's busy being brilliant. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. Um, that is an interesting, uh, that contradiction in the way you tackled it was very interesting to me, you know, obviously from a storytelling point of view. Uh, and I don't remember if this was in the book or if this mm-hmm. was something I put on it, but uh, it was basically you acting as... Uh, a camera for a documentary, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, it's a way for the reader to experience what's happening without without you getting in the way, right? Right, uh, and and it works really well. I mean, it's it's exceptionally done. Thank you. What is interesting, though, is the character of Bob Harris, who does appear in the book mm-hmm. uh, in those first hundred pages or so, mm-hmm. um, and you know, there, there's this sort of micro memoir mm-hmm. that happens in those pages. Do you mm-hmm. want to talk a little bit about that and about finding finding really what became what mm-hmm. would become the book? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened is, I mean, the, okay, we get to the writer's process, but you know, there's the classic Star Wars hero's journey, right? The reason that that stuff works, you know, that there's the call to adventure and then the refusal to call and changing circumstances and acceptance of the call. Well, that's actually how we make our decisions in real life. You know, hey, I got to do something about this. I don't feel like it. Oh, I really better do something about this. I mean, that's just, you know, uh, that's how I got dressed coming here to the studio. I was looking at the clock. I was like, I really better get dressed. I don't really feel like it. Yeah. No, I better get dressed. About 2.30, put on some pants. you decided. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there was a hero's journey just in getting here. These, these structures exist, you know, because they this reflect our real lives. And what happened in the book, um, not to spend too much time in the Genesis, but... I, I lucked into a job as a luxury travel writer, um, got to stay, stay in these billion-dollar hotels, the fanciest places on earth. And, um, you know, they're in places like Dubai and, and some other countries, the, the workers building them are right outside building the next monstrosity. And they're getting paid like six bucks a day. And they're living in – they're essentially indentured servants. And it just – you know, we, we have guys hanging out, you know, immigrants here in the United States who are outside Home Depot lined up just looking for day jobs, you know, willing to work, you know, just trying to put food on the table. It's not that it's radically different in these other countries. It's just that maybe because I was in another country, I had to have my eyes open further or something. Then it really hit me. And I felt like I needed to, for the book, um, have people understand why I did the mm-hmm. thing that I did. Because then I took all the money that I made and I started investing in these microloans. And if the book just starts with, um, okay, so I've taken all my money and I've, <laughs> I, I've given it to other people. And then this happened. Right. You, you just left with all these questions about why did this happen. So I thought, okay, well, I'll take my 
own little piece of the narrative, you know, my own real stuff. And I'll put that in the, sort of in the first act of the book and, and sort of walk people through the process. Because the other thing, too, is that everybody wants to do something wonderful for the world. Everybody listening to this wants to feel, you know, connected to people in Rwanda or whatever. But we don't know how. Mm-hmm. And the first third of the book or the first hundred pages, first quarter of the book, is uh, essentially my process of finding how I could do that. And so just show, sharing that with people as, as a way of, you know, here, here's something you can do, come on, seemed um, much more empowering than any other approach I could take. Yeah, it's also, I mean, that the fact that we get to see you struggle with that, that same question that we have about doing good and, you know, the selfishness that is inherent in that too, which I love mm-hmm. that you talk about that doing good means feeling good and yeah. that's what we're after. You know, it's, uh, you, you put it so beautifully in there. Um, let's us trust you for the rest of that book. Okay. Um, Thank you. Uh, and so, and so when you become the camera, when you become the lens through which we see it, uh, again, I think it makes it a lot easier. It makes it, makes us understand what's going on and that you're not judging it, you're experiencing it. Then my evil scheme has worked. <laughs> it absolutely has. Victory! Um, tell me about the voice of Bob Harris. Uh, I haven't read any of your other books, I'm sorry to say. Really, nobody uh, else has either. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, but I can't wait to track them down. Uh, they're all on the wish list now. Well, thank you. Um, and I, I know you blog a little bit, so I've, mm-hmm. I've poked around there. And you do have... Uh, you do have a strong voice. Oh, thank uh, you. You know, and you have a voice that is absolutely your voice. Does it come easily to you on the page? Uh, yeah, it's actually I have to tone it down. Uh, that's uh, what I wonder. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to reel it in a lot because I, I'm, I'm full of little snarky comments. And, and you know, it, it's, it, I think it was a defense mechanism from, like, a lot of people who became comedians because I was a comic for a long time really did have something go terribly wrong in junior high school. And, you know, humor is the defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. And if you really poke into the background of anybody who's really hysterical, they usually have some incredible tragedies or suicidal feelings in their backgrounds or something. And, um, uh, you know, so I was a comic for a while. And then when I'm on the page, um, you know, it, it's like, there, for example, I'll tell you something that was cut from the book, um, um, which is uh, I was writing about the current president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame. Uh, who is uh, Kagame was he was born as possibly the most powerful powerless human being you could possibly find he was in a refugee camp um, and uh, eventually led a uh, he he was part of one rebel movement in Uganda helped overthrow that dictator then took part of that army sort of stole it and went off and overthrew the home government of of his country Rwanda now who does that who who joins up with one army just so that he can start a rebel group within the other army so he can and hijack that army to then go fight the bad guy he wants to go get. I mean, that, that, you, you only find that in fiction, right? I mean, that that, that was amazing to me. So I and then so I'm writing this really serious thing about you know African conflicts and 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 this leader, and uh, he's like the most serious human being in the world. And then there was a line there. I said, you know, if I had if, if I had a garage band, uh, it'd be, it would be called uh, Paul Kagame's balls because nothing is more badass. <laughs> and. I looked at that. I was like, "No, that's not staying on the page. Right? That's just not staying on the page. This guy's a head of state. No, not talking about that." <laughs> um, there is. It's funny you mentioned that. I mean, it seems to me, and there are passages like that, and I can see where that is something you would cut. But there are passages like that where you're telling a story, and even just sitting here hearing you tell the story, mm-hmm. I see it happening in front of me. Mm-hmm. Where you're telling a story and then spiraling inside the story mm-hmm. to tell something else uh, about you or or something that happened in the story. Is this how you see the world, and are you fucking exhausted? (laughs) (laughs) 
that is the greatest question I've ever been asked. You're welcome. Honestly, you, seriously, like, look, if I ever like, if things don't work out with my current counselor, can I see you? Absolutely. Really? I don't know how much you charge, but but <laughs> seriously, no, that's all the, a donation to A two six LA. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. I'm totally down. Um, yeah, I do tend to kind of think laterally. Um, <laughs> It's and I and I, I maybe some people would say that I have trouble staying on the subject, but I, everything is connected. I mean, that was something that that uh, Dell taught in the improv classes, and that also is an incredibly freeing thing as a writer. Is when you're not sure, you know, if you've got different things you want to to say on the page, there's something that connects them if you can find it, um, and 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 at least create the illusion of of of, of logic to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, and and that goes. I mean, again, as a reader, that goes really far, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it gives a cohesion to. Mm-hmm. this passage or this chapter or you know this entire book mm-hmm. um is that uh, obviously that's something you learned but it's also something ingrained so how did you start to well i guess i'm asking was there a lightning bolt mm-hmm. after you know your experiences with improv after working as a writer in various mm-hmm. media mm-hmm. you know was there a lightning bolt where things came together for you as a writer i'm still waiting for that <laughs> i'm not that's not false modesty yeah. um no it's it's still you know it's 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 but i mean again I, I can't complain i mean the whole book is about people who work for 11 and 12 or 13 hours a day and I'm sitting here complaining because, oh, I'm so tired of looking at my computer screen on my fancy computer that I can then, you know, it's, it's actually I am exhausted because this particular book, I haven't been able to um, here, here. I'm making one of those lateral connections now. Very good. Um, the uh, there's there, there are people in this book who work harder just to put food on the table and take care of their kids than. I even knew was possible. Um, and I, I come, I'm working class Ohio. My dad worked in a, a warehouse at General Motors for 37 years. And so, you know, I, I know, I've seen, I grew up around people who work really hard. Um, but in the Philippines, I met this one woman named Jennifer who works, you're going to think I'm kidding. And I I asked for the translation to be, I kept asking over and over, really? To, to get it right. She gets up at three in the morning every morning to start making breakfast because the men who work in the quarry digging rocks uh, right next to her house or down the street, actually, uh, they start walking by at about five so they can get to work. And she has to have hot meals out to sell. And then she sells breakfast and she sells, you know, snacks and cigarettes and whatever and then lunch and on. And her day doesn't end. They finally finish washing up at about 10 p.m. That's a 19-hour day, and she does this almost every single day. She gets a couple couple hours off in the middle of the day. Uh, her mom spells her, but... And, and, and she tells me this, and she tells me this with joy because she's got this beautiful, I mean, gorgeous son with this big, full head of hair. And she loves the kid, and she's able to provide for the kid. And that's fantastic. This is, you know, the, the happiest thing, and the kid is adorable. And uh, she's telling me this now while I'm writing the book and I'm writing her story. Actually, while I was working on the chapter set in the Philippines... I remember there were a couple of nights where I was sitting there and I actually started feeling real resentment of her because I was tired and I had a deadline and I wanted to stop and I wanted to go to bed and I just wanted to watch Jon Stewart or, or, you know, see a ball game or something. And I had this deadline looming and I'd look at the clock and I had only worked 14 hours that day. So I'm five hours behind her. I'm like totally lame. Um, So, Jennifer, if you ever hear this, I'm... Oh, dear God. Yeah. Yeah. how the hell were you working 14 hours? Well, God, deadlines. Even that is miserable. Deadlines will do that. Um, well, the, the, this book is also a, a giant juggling act because it has to be a primer on microfinance at the same time that it's a travelogue that delves into the history of each location. While I'm telling the personal stories of all these different clients, there's a lot of moving parts and balls in the air. And the client's stories all have their own arcs, mm-hmm. you know, as they tell their story of how they move forward. But it needs the social context of that country, which has to be woven in in some way where the reader always feels like they know why they're in that part of the book. 
And that, that's just – this is the hardest thing I'll ever write as far as I – as long as I ever live. Mm-hmm. I'll never write anything harder. Um, I mean, the, the one thing, the best advice you said about a lightning bolt, um, I once heard Ira Glass, uh, who was something of a storyteller, said that something he didn't know right away was – and learned early – was that the audience always has to know exactly where they are in a story and where they're going. You know, what, what's the next step in front of me? Why am I going here? It's, you know, it's basic drama. You know, where's the protagonist going here? And even in digressions about, you know, the history of Kenya and why the boundary is drawn where it is against Tanzania, there has to be a reason. The, the, the reader has to know why I'm telling him this mm-hmm. or her. And uh, that... That was hard to do with all this different stuff. So, yeah, 14-hour sure. days. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. That Those histories were so deftly handled, I thought. Uh, Thank you. You know, there was, there was opportunity there to either not give enough or give far too much. Does there exist a draft of this where, you know, you're sidetracked into a much deeper history of Kenya? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yes. I, this is like the actual published version is probably... 60% of all the stuff that I wound up writing. Wow. I mean, I, which is, is, is actually been normal for my books. Um, oh, I was going to yeah. ask about that. My so, book about Jeopardy is 104,000 words long. The first draft was about 170. And that's not bad. Yeah, there's really, I mean, there's not, a, where are there 170,000 words to write about Jeopardy? <laughs> right, but it's not 4,000 words. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that process. So do you do this kind of get everything down draft mm-hmm. and then start kind of shifting things around try to get them in order mm-hmm. um about how long does that take you i mean this book seems like it's probably anomalous in, in a lot of ways but you know in speaking mm-hmm. in general uh, well everything i've ever written has always been 50 percent too long as long as i've lived i used to do radio commentaries for knx here mm-hmm. uh they were one minute long and uh i learned that in one minute i could speak maximum 220 230 words which means i'm talking this fast for the entire minute <laughs> and if you ever heard knx radio at 6 37 p.m you remember, hi, folks, this is Bob Harris, and I used to do that. Um, everybody who hears this in Los Angeles probably heard me do one of these. And I would write, and I would try desperately to get it down. I could speak at a comfortable pace that the audience who's driving could actually hear and listen. Maybe 130 words would have been fine, 140. Pause, take your time. And I could never do it. I always had more than I wanted to say that I could possibly squeeze sure. into one minute. Absolutely. Everything I've done has been that way. Listen, you're talking to a guy who does an 85-minute show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Um, uh, so, so tell me about that process of paring it down. It's, I mean, again, okay, so I've already quoted Joss Whedon and Ira Glass. I'm going to quote Hemingway now. Um, the, but, the great three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and by the way, if you hang, if they hang out in a bar, uh, kill your babies. You know, anything that's there just because you love it, you know, and for no other reason, it's it's only for you and it's not for the reader and you get rid of it. And that hurts sometimes because there's something that there are things I've written. There's there there was there was a whole extended footnote on on the uh, the way that Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations is taken out of context by modern economists. That and it's a, it's a really fascinating digression, but it was basically a pamphlet that needs to sit by itself, or it's a blog sure. post or something like that. And I, I do get a little ticked off at the way they people misuse the phrase "invisible hand" without understanding. You know, the people people who quote Adam Smith usually have never read Adam Smith. So anyway, and there was this whole thing about that, and I justified it in my head because, well, it's a book about economics. It's a book about um, you know, and then I, I, that rationalization carried all the way through to. 
oh geez, the copy edited draft. No, and then I, and I finally just this is wrong. This <laughs> just this is not moving the story forward. This is not helping the reader understand the travails of this, mm-hmm. you know, family in Nepal. This is this is just me ranting. This has to go. But there's also the question of, and this actually comes up quite a bit when we talk to TV writers. You know, you're you're not just writing for yourself, which you know, if, when you say take out the stuff that you like, sometimes it's mm-hmm. easy, sometimes it's not. But you also want to write for an audience i mean there are artists who don't right Mm -hmm. and god love them but (laughs) (laughs) somebody has to yeah but you know some of us want to sell books Mm -hmm. um so 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 talk about walking that line i mean are how aware are you of the audience and not just what they need but how entertained they ought to be because um, that helps the information go down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's, if, no, if if you don't have people's attention, you're not. There's, there's you've wasted everybody's time. Uh, I, I I do essentially what I think Hollywood would call focus grouping. Um, really? I, I yeah, I share every chapter as I'm writing with oh, friends no, that I'm close to. Um, yeah. Um, and a lot of them were thanked in the acknowledgments of the book. There were a lot of people who got a, I live in L.A. I'm really lucky that I'm surrounded by really great writers. And there were maybe, um, I don't know, I, I shared it with maybe another, I could, I, could, I could bore you with a list of names. But there's probably about another half a dozen people who mm-hmm. saw different things. And then the final draft I shared with another dozen or so people, kind of different cross-section, um, different parts of the country, different ages and stuff like that. And every single note... And I, I think this is really important. There is no such thing as a bad note. If somebody says it, they said it for a reason. Mm-hmm. They're right. Hmm. Um, I, I got feedback I didn't want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, like what? Oh, geez, the book. Well, okay, and it was correct feedback. <laughs> um, That's the worst part. Yeah, yeah. when you, you don't want to hear it and it's correct. Yeah, as a writer, sometimes you're a little insecure about whether you have the audience's attention. Mm-hmm. So you try to, you know, sometimes you want to start out with something that's like really going to get people. You know, they're going to talk about that. They're going to remember that some big image. And for the first couple of drafts, um, the, the the book actually opened uh, where I was trying the uh, the civet poop coffee in in Dubai. You know, hey, civet poop coffee. Okay, are you looking? Are you paying attention? <laughs> Total insecurity on my part. Hmm. I just, you know, I, I got a billboard something bigger they're not going to read. And um, uh, a couple of people liked it. A couple of people didn't. And uh, my friend Cindy in New Jersey uh, read it. And she called me up and she's, cat poop. Really? <laughs> You're starting your book with cat poop. <laughs> And it's okay. All right. Okay. Some people are going to react that way. She's right. I got to change it. So um, I, I don't actually see it as my manuscript. It's it's I'm writing a thing that has to you know has to reach people. And if anybody's telling me they're tuning out, they're not going to be the only one. Hmm. That actually, it's interesting. It goes against a lot of the conventional wisdom about writing a book, especially where you need to hold on to it until you get out what you need to get out. Um, did you were you working off of an outline or was it just I mean you were kind of writing as you were going but did you have the pieces in in your brain so you didn't have to worry about that sort of thing? Uh I had an outline that I wound up throwing out which really? always is what always happens. Oh no kidding. Yeah, yeah, it changes in the writing and I mean the book about Jeopardy um uh for example is the best example I can tell you of of an outline suddenly going out the window. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of moving parts too. It's called Prisoner of Trebekistan. Anybody who, you know, is is familiar with Jeopardy. They've actually had it as a question on the show, which I, kind of, really? kind of, I feel That's very great. proud of. Yeah. It's like being knighted. <laughs> and um in the middle of writing that, and I, I kind of don't want to give it away too much, but the narrative su- takes a sudden hard left turn right in the middle of the book. With this, this thing just comes out of nowhere that you're not expecting having happened in my personal life. 
And that was not in the outline. That wasn't supposed to be there. I had everything just... I'd actually had taken a big piece of um, uh, uh, butcher's paper and laid it out as sort of my whiteboard and had drawn diagrams of, like, where everything was going to wind up working. And and um, and I was writing... As I was actually writing the draft, um, unexpectedly, I just had this impulse, this goes here. And I had no idea why, and I wrote... Probably, I think I wrote like 2,500 words that day, which remained almost intact in the book to the final draft wow. and, and are printed. And in the middle of that 2,500 words, I was sitting in a Starbucks on Pico, and the, the one over there by the, by the uh, West Side Pavilion. <laughs> I was sitting in that Starbucks, and I was just working on a draft. And it, um, by the way, how cliche, <laughs> L.A. writer in Starbucks with a laptop. And now I'm, I'm working for the poor. Uh, so it, it, it just took this really hard left turn. And if you read the book, you'll, you'll see it. You'll know exactly where it is. And it's this big reveal that winds up driving the narrative for the entire rest of the story. And it's in the right place. It's in exactly the right place. In fact, later on when I looked back at it, I mean, I could show you, like, we could, I, we could take the hero's journey and say, here, this is the spot. This is the midpoint. This is where it's supposed to happen. Yeah. And it was totally – my hands did it. I had nothing to do with it. Were, were you – panicked about this because intellectually you had this roadmap to follow but instinctually you were being taken to this other place um no actually i was kind of excited by it it was sort of um the discovery in the writing is the real fun of it you know that thing you know when you're sitting at the keyboard and um i know something's working when if if i if i write something and i'm really laughing while i write it it's usually funny for 90 percent of the people Mm -hmm. if i'm crying while i'm writing it i mean if it's really common I'm, cl- I'm pretty close to the part that I want that's going to get that. I feel the emotion mm-hmm. really intensely that I want to have on the page. While I'm writing, I'm probably doing something that's, that, that, that's got it. And this, this just instinctively, I, I was just fascinated by it. It's like, that, 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 like being in an improv class uh, or, or being on stage in a show, and it takes a left turn. Somebody brings something else up on stage you weren't expecting, and it's like, oh, this whole new thread to go explore. And so it was this real yes-and improv kind of a thing. And I just rolled with it for the rest of the day, and it wound up being the center of the book. Wow. Um, I want to ask a couple of nitpicky questions, which okay. are going to sound really bratty. Please. Uh, but let's get into it. All right. Um, you, you know, as I said, you have this first 100 pages or so where you really build this, this Bob character and mm-hmm. this Bob voice, and we are absolutely with you. Thank you. Um, through this. And then you, you kind of go out of your way before embarking on the journey to talk about how this is not uh, poverty porn, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a great passage, and it's great that to address it. Um, and, and you absolutely are successful because, again, we're, we're with you on this, mm-hmm. and, and we know where it all comes from. It's all so honest. Mm-hmm. Um, how aware did you have to be of this in in putting together this book? I mean, there's there's this there is the threat, right, mm-hmm. of this being poverty tourism, sure, sure. Uh, and you being the white man who comes right. in. All right, yeah. There's a whole. Um, there were two things that I really kind of several things that, that I really needed to to uh, make clear. This book is not, and as you said, poverty tourism, which is, this is actually the diametric opposite. I mean, poverty tourism is somebody taking a camera, hopping into right. you know Cabrera or Soweto or someplace, getting a picture with you know, hey, I'm here with an African, you know, and they they put it up on uh, on on uh, um, uh, Instagram, right. you know, and okay, that's gross. This is actually the, the diametric opposite. I'm showing up at people's homes. I'm learning about their lives. I'm let me you know hear your story. 
salaries, investing in their loans. I'm trying to, you know, this is, I don't know how you get less poverty tourism right. than what I was doing. I right. think it's the opposite. It's not voyeuristic. It's it's much more uh, journalistic. No, these people are, I mean, they, they welcomed me into their homes. You know, we sat, we had coffee, we, we made friends. I mean, uh, 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 you know, I, there are Facebook friends who came out. There's, there's the couple in Bosnia who have a Facebook page of their furniture that they made, and I have the Facebook link at the end. You know, the, this isn't turning people into objects or souvenirs mm-hmm. the way that a lot of narratives about the developing world tend to. Um, one of the expectations that I think the audience has, is trained to have and doesn't realize they have about the story of a Westerner abroad is that the story is about how it, the, the, the abroad part is really just a big scrim. It's a giant backdrop for the emotional transformation of the hero. And I mean, you see this, in, and I give the examples in the book, and there's plenty of others. I had to cut the list because it was getting boring. Um, but, I mean, Dances with Wolves, mm-hmm. you know, and um, Fern Gully. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, it, they're all the same movie. Uh, um, I mean, they're brilliantly made. What's the, the James Cameron um, yeah, Avatar? Avatar. Avatar, yeah. Which is the same story. You have the person goes to the frontier. They the transformative experience. They go native. And it's still actually, the, it, not only are they the same story, done over and over just with slightly different details but it's actually one that that is deeply pleasing on an intuitive level to to a westerner because you know at, at the end of it the 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 the, the, uh, the people of the developing world the, the, the people of the blue-skinned people or the indians or whoever it is they still need a white guy in charge you sure. know they, it still right. winds up the end of it their hero is our hero it's, it's an still, assertion of our dominance yeah it's still an assertion of power and it's also a, an assertion of superiority but mm-hmm. it pretends to be very much the opposite, it pretends to be extreme sensitivity and all that, and, and it's it's, it's well intentioned. I'm sure it's 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 you know, comes out of a sincere place. This is nothing like that. This is me. I show up in Kenya and I ask the guy, you know, tell me about your coffee farm, and he's telling me what he's doing, and and it's cool. These people have incredibly <laughs> creative ideas I never would have thought of. I, I, I'm walk, I mean, the, the folks in Bosnia, the furniture people, these guys were war refugees. They they spent the the, the Bosnian war out of the country. They come back, they got nothing, and, and they've just, you know, scraps of furniture, and there's not much left. And they realize that, they, that, well, everybody's rebuilding. And they have a bed, and with no prior experience in this sort of stuff, they, they had, like, you know, office jobs. I think, uh, I think the wife was a graphic designer or something. But there was, they, they didn't have anything. They actually back-engineered their bed. They ripped their bed apart, figured out how to make more beds, got a loan, bought the materials in bulk, and became like, sort of like the bedding manufacturer for their neighborhood. And... They wound up making beautiful stuff. I would never think of that in a million years, you know. And I, I and these people, the p- people I met were so creative, and and and, but exactly the same as you and me. And, and necessity being a mother of invention, I'm sure that you know, uh, you and I would come up with brilliant stuff they, they may not think of. Whatever, it's, it's just seeing people as equals. It's just seeing people mm-hmm. as as our neighbors down the street, the same as us. And if they speak a different language and they have a different religion or whatever, who cares? They're putting food on the table, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is just sort of a um, a technical question, but you know, uh, you you take great pains in the book to say how much Kiva was and wasn't involved, mm-hmm. um, and and it's interesting to hear exactly how mm-hmm. much they were and weren't. Um, but at some point, you had to, don't they have a rule about not visiting? Yeah. The, uh, how, how did the, how did you get around that? Well, I, I just ignored them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> basically, it I had showed to be up. a conversation with them because yeah. you go to the training and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for those who, who aren't familiar, Kiva.org, the charity that's sort of at the heart of the book, the micro lending charity, and I won't belabor them here. Go to the website Kiva.org. You'll figure out they're great it's sort of like an yeah. ebay for doing good <laughs> there's all these uh, listings of people with the, the different professions and their the, uh, the ways that they're trying to, to make a living well 
I mean, as it was said to me several times, um, microfinance institutions are not travel agencies. <laughs> They're not set up, you know, right. to have a guy. I mean, everybody at the, the at the the lending institutions, they're working 12-hour days, too. You know, they're often sort of out in the middle of nowhere. They're hard to get to. And then the clients are working enormous hours. And just the physical boundaries, just the obstacles to actually physically getting to a client are, are formidable. And and what are you going to do when you get there? You know, I mean, they're busy. they got a life. they got stuff to do. So when I first uh, contacted Kiva about this, uh, about, you know, hey, I think I might want to do this, they hear this all the time. Everybody who, who lends through Kiva kind of wants to go through the looking glass and meet the client and, and be on the other side of the screen and know what they're doing is good. And so they, they'd heard this all the time from, from people, and they kind of rolled their eyes a little bit. It's like, well, yeah, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, whatever. But at first it was very arm's length. It was very, well, okay, I, you know, sure, go ahead. And um, they, they let me come. Uh, they have this group of people called Kiva Fellows who volunteer to go into the field um, for three-month stretches uh, in dozens of countries all over the world. Um, and they, they, they have a week of training. And it's just like it's like the cross between a college orientation night and the night before Normandy, because all these people are gathered in a room and they some of them don't even know where they're going. Like it's Monday morning and the following Monday, there was a woman wearing a name tag that said West Africa TBD. She's just going somewhere in West Africa. She doesn't know what country she's going to. They let me sit in on that training, um, and I, I got some sense of you know the structure of everything. And then after that, it was just kind of like, well, if you're going to do it, go do it. And it was after I'd been in the field for a while, and I hadn't broken anything or you know, caused any major international incidents or whatever. We gradually, you know, we established a certain degree of trust. And, um, and, and as time has gone on, I mean, I worked on the project for several years. Uh, some of the people at Kiva has actually become really good friends, which I cop to in the book because yeah. it's also really important to me to be honest with the reader. And there's, you know, I, there are so many, like, Washington correspondents who report objectively on a politician, and then on, on the weekends, it's their racquetball partner, right? right? And I'm not going to do that. So I just go ahead and say, yeah, these people are my friends, but I tried to be as objective as I possibly could. Come with me on the journey. Um, well, and I think because it's also, you set it up as being such a personal story, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we understand where you're coming from, that I think I don't think anyone would get on you about that anyway. So far. So far, nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing has particularly come up. But, it's only been a couple of weeks. Well, you know, the thing is, one thing I was aware of, you asked me about... Um, the uh, uh, how aware of the reader am mm-hmm. I? Now maybe this comes from being uh, coming from an alcoholic home where you're always on on you know you're, you're on the defensive at all times. Am I safe? Am I safe? There's the hyper vigilance of the, the adult child of alco- uh, of alcoholism. But while I was writing, I was very aware of the cynicism that exists in our society. So many memoirs and so many things where somebody's done something in the developing world, or they just turn out to be disappointing. They turn out to something's not true, something's not right. Coney twenty twelve, or three cups of tea, or maybe you know the the, the million little pieces memoir, whatever. There's all these examples of something that's been you know a really great story, and then something's turned out to be just fundamentally not right about it. And I just kind of had this feeling the whole time that that I would understand, I would totally understand why a reader would look at this and and wonder, you know, it, it, how much of this is actually real. Which is why I'm I'm constantly through the book footnoting to here's the web page where you can view this. Here's this is the here it is. Look, I actually wanted this to be uh, if you were reading it on like an like an iPad or something, yeah. you could just constantly be linking and checking and yeah, it's all real. Jeez, that that's real. Oh, there's the guy's face. What do you know? Um, so yeah, I was very aware. And you also uh, cop to early on, you know, I wasn't planning to write this book. Mm-hmm. 
so a lot of it is as I remember it. And and mm-hmm. I have to say, I mean, I, I come from the camp of, listen, if it's emotionally honest, mm-hmm. who gives a shit if it happens? <laughs> right. You know? Uh, yeah. And it kind of gets back to that thing, uh, and this is what I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about earlier, um, of, you know, if, if you're laughing, then you know this is a funny mm-hmm. piece. If you're crying, you know mm-hmm. this is working emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, do you get to touch that often? You know, I feel like that's so rare that we, we get to we get to translate emotion so nakedly and it actually works. I got to tell you, I, I have it happen a lot while I'm writing, to be honest with really? you, to be really honest with you. Yeah. You're an open um, wound. Yeah, actually that's pretty <laughs> right. accurate. Well, I'm not, uh, look, the book is about dealing with, uh, going and visiting places that have been through some of the worst things that have ever happened, you know, and I'm not the, I, I don't pretend for one second to be the sort of world beating jut jawed global traveler who can just sort of, you know, hop onto the plane, go to Rwanda, hang out with people, you know, with amputations and five inch scars, And then come home and, well, that's all hunky-dory and just sit down at the typewriter and write and be unaffected by what you've seen. Um, No, I'm I'm the guy who comes home, you know, with my own PTSD just from empathizing so heavily with, with, with everybody. And that's actually been an interesting part of, uh, of the process is that, you know, it's catharsis as it often is for a writer. I'm I'm sitting and I'm writing these stories and there were times in, in the writing of it that I would find that there was something I needed to write and it would be, and that would result in one of two things. It would either be a, 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 one of the Hemingway babies that I would just have to kill something self-indulgent or something incredibly pivotal that (laughs) turned out to be, you know, key to the story. Um, it's, it's one thing that, that I did also come across too is that, uh, just in my own, and this is this is actually fresh. This is this is real. This is right now. I uh, uh, finished the manuscript for all intents and purposes with a couple of last minor tweaks, late November, early December. To that point, I had been holding all of the experiences from every country, and I went all over the place: you know, Peru and Cambodia and whatnot. Um, and uh, I told them all in my head. I'd, they, everything was in moleskin notebooks, and it was all pretty much from the neck up. And mm-hmm. it's all—it's all under my control. It's all—I'm moving pieces around on a jigsaw puzzle in my in, in in my head, and I'm creating a book. And how can I change it? I can tweak the narrative, and I. Blah, blah, blah. And then when it's finally done, and I've turned it in, and I—I've I, I, handed it to the editor, and it's out of my hands now, and it's going to be a rectangle of paper that people can judge, and I can't change it anymore. All of a sudden, it was like somebody had pulled a, a drain plug somewhere around neck level in the middle of my body, and all of the stuff that had been in my head suddenly just went down into my heart and and we're talking about you know hanging out with you know people in india and 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 people in nepal some of the poorest countries and places and and i had a serious meltdown just all the emotions started coming all at once and you're talking about you know getting into the emotion while it's on paper I was actually probably holding it. I was I was holding it in as hard as I could the whole time I was writing, and when it was finally over, there was actually just a couple of weeks of I wouldn't call it depression. I wouldn't call it because uh, there's the postpartum depression of writing anything. Absolutely, and you get done with it and it's out and you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you often hear about you know writers either getting physically ill mm-hmm. following you mm-hmm. know such a long a long experience. As this a one. friend of mine shot shot herself after uh, she really? had yeah. I won't go into the oh details, but yeah yeah. I mean I know somebody who died from it. Um, she was a really, Horrible. really nice person um, and just, you know, had had created a thing and it got rejected and she didn't know what to do next. Out she went. And, you know, that, that there is that. But this was more just this 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 welter of, of all these different experiences, some of which I'd never processed. Things that are not relevant to the book, per se. They're not relevant to the clients or to microfinance. But um, 
that you just you you're moved by people's stories that you meet on the street and you of just course. start talking to. And you know, in Rwanda, people went through some stuff. You know, in Cambodia, you know, and uh, uh, so that was that was that was a surprise. Uh, I did not know that that was coming. <laughs> and then I had to pull it all together again so I could come out and do interviews like this. Exactly. So <laughs> and, okay, well done. Oh, we'll get right. you to cry. Wait, okay. ten more minutes, you'll right. be in tears. Okay. Um, let's talk about the the nuts and bolts a little bit. I mean, you know, you're you're setting yourself up. Uh, you're holding this emotional stuff both mm-hmm. in and and without. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not breaking down crying in the Starbucks on Pico, are you? That's happened. Has it? Yeah. That's, I, that's I always happened. wonder about the space yeah. a writer creates for himself when yeah. working on this. Usually stuff. it happens at home. There have been a couple of times it's happened unexpectedly. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, that's happened. That's happened. Yeah. Um, I'm. The other thing, too, is that... <clears throat> In the course of, of writing this, um, I had to open myself up in ways that I, I wasn't expecting. Uh, ultimately, just to fl- I'm, I'm flying into Beirut now. I'm going to get off a plane. I'm going to go walking down the street in Beirut. I have been trained by American television to assume that I'm going to die. And the fact of the matter is Beirut's a beautiful city, and they've certainly had their factional differences and whatever. But when things aren't blowing up, it's actually wonderful, and people are great and so warm and so lovely. And, and this happened all over the place. I just got gang befriended everywhere I went in the world. Everywhere. Places I thought that, that, that you know, I just didn't figure people would be all that, you know, cotton to somebody like me. Mm-hmm. And no, I, I, I mean, I've got photographs of people on the street in Beirut who, um, you know, assumed, actually often they would assume I was German from my coloration, um, you know, blonde haired and blue eyed and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, kids, uh, would start talking. There's a photo in the book, actually, in the, in the insert of this gang of friendly teenagers in Lebanon who just were so excited to meet an American and, and hmm. it was, it was wonderful. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, uh. And now, now we need to make, make a mark here because I'm sort of losing where I was, uh, well, you was going with all that. Uh, oh, do I break how, down? Yeah. Do and, do? and opening yourself in different oh, ways yeah, yeah, during yeah. the writing of this. Yeah. So I'm walking around and, and I'm getting hugged by people. And in order to interview people and you're going across language barriers and I had to learn how to work with translators all over the world. So you spend a lot of time with your body language, just kind of letting people know that you're cool. It's okay. You know, I'm open to anything. I'm good with this. And all of the improv training with the yes and. Um, somebody brings you a goat brochette. Yes and. I'm going to eat that thing. I'm going to see what this is about. Often to my great regret. Um, the, the, the charcoal yogurt that I had in Kenya, I will remember as long as I live. Um, I, you know, as I say in the book, I, I, the, I, I'm not kidding. The next morning I woke up and I really figured that they could hear my gas in Uganda. I was... It was awful. It was. I, it, thank God for antibiotics. <laughs> well, so, you're also the guy who sought out the cat poop coffee. So I did. I did. That's true. Well, that's perfectly safe. That's boiled. That kills the bacteria. <laughs> that's fine. So anyway, so you're, you spend all this time opening yourself up, um, and I, I kind of am a different person for these last few years than I was beforehand, and just a lot more kind of emotionally naked. I find myself laughing and crying more easily all the time. I, I, I think there's probably a whole string of coffee shops on the west side of Los Angeles who just think that I'm that crazy guy who comes in and cries at his laptop. Um, it doesn't, it's, not, it's not all the time, but... Uh, but often enough. Yeah. But, but how do you write about what happened in Cambodia? How do you write about the killing fields and not be crying while you're writing it? Sure. I, don't, I actually don't understand that. I, I would have, when I was in my 20s, it would have all been this intellectual thing. It would have been this di- distant, different experience, totally alien from my own world. Mm-hmm. But I've been there. I've been in the fields. I've been to the prison. I've been to visit people. I've met survivors. I've sat in their homes. We, I've, 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 worked with, I've sat with the businesses and, and, and sat there while the, you know, the nice lady is, is cutting the morning glories. And it's real now. Right. How do you write about that and not cry? 
if you're actually writing, if you're really sharing, if you're getting into the feeling of it and you're, you're trying to, to, to bring the, the reader to the place, that place isn't a location. It's, it's uh, perceptions and emotions and, and, I don't know, I'm a method writer. <laughs> you, I, That's what well, I'm saying. I think, I think we have to be, right? I mean, and, and especially in prose, although across all media, you know, you have to sort of open a vein. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's I'm obviously not the first to make that analogy, mm-hmm. but it, it, there's something to that. You mm-hmm. know, you have to be an exposed nerve on the page mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's going to affect you uh, in the way that you have to affect the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the emotional experience of writing your previous books? Um, similar, just less intense because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the one about Jeopardy, Prisoner Trebekistan, that one, that's, that's a memoir, but it's about a game show. It's mostly joyful, happy, goofy, mm-hmm. um, except for the violent turn in the middle of it. And that, that's, that's, that, that was, that's about the, the short version is that I, I went in the front door of Jeopardy expecting to win fabulous cash and prizes. And I went out the back door of Jeopardy with a boatload of friends that I didn't expect I would, I, I some of the nicest people you can meet in the world are in the Jeopardy green room. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a bunch of curiosity about the world that I would not have had otherwise, because in studying for the show, I had to learn. I, I never would have studied Shakespeare otherwise. I never would have studied, you know, I, I, my degree is in engineering. I was never going to be this guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so and it, it, actually the International Bank of Bob is a direct sequel to Trebekistan because that's all about opening yourself up to the world mm. and being more and more interested in the world. And then so that's sort of like the that's the classroom. And then you know, the Bank of Bob yeah. is the lab. Where I, where I went back out. So the experience of writing that book was was also emotionally, you know, pretty uh, vulnerable. But it was it was more it was you know Jeopardy's a head thing, you know it's it's how do you remember stuff and there's there's stuff in there about how I learned all this stuff for the show. So it gets into it's 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 much more in the headspace. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much more neck up, and this is much more neck down. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, talk to me a little bit about the business of books. Mm. Uh, we don't often get a chance to talk about this on these um, um, podcasts. Well, the simple version is that it sucks. Yeah. I mean, that's what, the business well, what, of books. What's your experience been? I mean, you, you have a book agent, clearly, mm-hmm. and uh, you had to, you, have, you go through an editor in a publishing mm-hmm. house. And how, yeah. how do all these things work, and how much do they weigh in like a studio would on a TV show? I have to tell you, I am – yeah, I mean, having done TV and stuff, it's, it's different. I, I, prefer the, I prefer writing books in, in the actual process of writing. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, you, you know, there's just an editor and, right. and, a, and, a, and a publisher maybe. And by the way, when I say it sucks, I just meant uh, I, I would like to clarify for a second. <laughs> um, I actually am very, very lucky. I, uh, the, the publisher of this particular work, um, the guy who actually runs this publishing house personally edited the book. He took, he took this yeah. on. It's like he was, he was moved by my pitch when mm-hmm. I went in and, I, and, and he actually said, I want, and he, he edited it himself. So he's been great. Um, but a lot of what's happened, of course, and I'm not telling anybody, you, look, you're listening to us on the Internet. You understand about how <laughs> the way that uh, content has been so radically devalued that it's, you know, I mean, advances are dropping. And, and you know, nobody's everybody's trying to figure out how to make money anymore. And, and the, the, the book industry largely still runs on this kind of almost 19th century business model of, of you know, there's a... a um, a guy will make a decision uh, or the, uh, to, to, to pick up a book and, and publish it kind of on instinct, kind of on a seat of the pants kind of thing. There's not a ton of market research. There's some publishers that do a lot of it, and it's happening more and more. But to a certain degree, it's, it's kind of, well, this boy has promise, you know, and it's, it's done that way. Um, and that has its merit because that can reward, you know, if there's, if there's an editor with, with great taste or, or, you know, you can take a hunch and you can jump on it. I'm not saying everything should be market-driven by any stretch. Um, but at the same time, that, that same 
that merit of being able to jump on a hunch and, 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 you know, work in a sort of old school fashion doesn't necessarily lend itself to having mastery of 21st century social media the way that it's constantly changing. And, uh, I mean, everybody that I know in publishing is just scrambling to keep up and it's all, you know, there's another social media site and everybody's got to, you know, it's, it's, Everybody I know in publishing is a little bit overwhelmed. Sure. And I mean that's probably the case. I mean I haven't worked in television in a long time. I'm sure it's the 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 the, the case in TV too. Everybody's jumping to the internet and no, no, YouTube. Everyone, everyone's totally cool. <laughs> well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Um, um so tell me uh, just you know technically about the process. You you pitch the book mm-hmm. uh to the editor. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and then he just kind of says, "All right, go do your thing. Here's your deadline." Yeah, pretty much. Pretty really? much. Yeah. Uh, well, in this in this particular case, yeah, mm-hmm. um, uh, I have a, a wonderful agent um, who I met, by the way, through a Jeopardy contestant. Oh, no so see, Jeopardy is this <laughs> also a networking opportunity. Um, <laughs> seriously, by the way, one of the greatest living novelists on our planet. I swear to you, you will be rewarded. Listen to me. The guy named Arthur Phillips, um, and I'm not oh, telling yeah. you anything. You don't. You know Arthur's book? I love Arthur. He's Phillips. one of my dearest friends. Yeah. Met the, him the, the Egyptologist. Yes. Arthur yeah. Phillips. Arthur. Fantastic. Met him in the Jeopardy green room get out of here yeah 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 he's a five-time champ and we were on the same tournament in 1998 does he still live in boston uh he's in he's uh, lives in new york city now okay. and uh we we met and i didn't know he was a novelist or anything like that we, we bonded and then in 2005 they had the ultimate tournament of champions uh which was after ken jennings had won 74 games they couldn't have an ordinary tournament of champions <laughs> that year because there was it would have been a tournament of champion right. <laughs> and so they put ken up against everybody and um and everybody won by the way brad rudder won that tournament but uh so in that tournament uh, arthur and i had the same taping date and it a bunch of years had gone by and we sat next to each other uh uh in the green room and stuff and, and really just kind of bonded we've been pretty close ever since arthur's stuff is fantastic and um uh uh anyway he introduced me to to his agent and one thing led to another and now she's my agent too <laughs> and so she makes a phone call and and um we pitched a couple of places and um this wonderful editor this the guy the editor publisher guy who i just love george uh george gibson at uh, at, at walker bloomsbury his office is in the in the flat iron building building in uh uh in new york city facing it's in the pointy part so he sits in a vanishing point with this view of broadway and i go into this guy's office and i sit down and i've got um some profiles of kiva lender kiva kiva clients um whose stories looked interesting to me these are the kinds of people i want to go meet Mm -hmm. and i show them to him and i sort of tell him okay here's my idea i'm going to take your advance i'm going to spend it on air travel and i'm just going to fly all over the world i'm going to go meet Here's this guy in a small town in rural Cambodia who shinnies up palm trees for a living, a guy named Pung Tik. I would love to meet him. I don't know if I'm going to meet him for sure. I'm not sure who I'm going to meet. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who I'm going to meet, and I don't know what their stories are going to be. I'll take my advance. But I'd like my money. Right. And, but George looked at it, and he saw, A, the charity part of it, and, and uh, he liked some of my previous writing, whatever. And it's not the hugest advance in the world, but he took a chance. He just said, all right, um, this actually looks really cool. And he, he was fascinated by the stories. And he asked me a question in that meeting that I'll always remember. He said, how do you keep this from being just episodic? You know, it's just one person's story, then another person's story. And this gets – it was right in that first meeting. It gets right to the heart of what I asked Joss later. How do I – how do I tell this story where I'm telling other people's stories and I'm the narrator? And how do I make that work? And when George asked me this in 2009, I think it was, uh, I just said, I really don't know. So, okay, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who I'm meeting. I don't know what the stories are going to be. And I don't know how to structure the book. Can I please have your money now? And this is where the 19th century part of it kicked in. And George said, yeah. 
And that's how it happened. Um, and then after then, it's been years of trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing ever since. Right. <laughs> uh, and then how how does how did uh, how much of a hand did the editor have in it? George has again. It was George again right. uh, who personally shepherded the thing. Um, he was great. He he just like. You know, different editors have different ways of working, and some of them have a very heavy hand. They have a kind of they, they almost try to make your writing sound like theirs, hmm. and they need to be thrown into the La Brea tar pits. Those are that's that's awful. Um, it's understandable. It's hard not to do it. Mm-hmm. I would be an awful editor, by the way. I would be a terrible, terrible editor, and I'd be the first guy in the tar pit. So mm-hmm. let's be clear about that. Um, and then there's some editors who just they actually try to tune into your voice, you know, and figure out how to help you say what you want to say. And I've been really, really lucky. George uh, was great, and uh, the the woman who edited Rebecca Stan, and the guy who edited Who Hates Whom, and it, it, like I've been really lucky with editors. Mm-hmm. I, it's just I, I actually want to. If, if this was a game of of blackjack, I, I, blackjack, I'd stop taking cards now. <laughs> I've I hold. I've got good yeah. editors. I'm I'm, I'm fine. Um, he went through the, the the text. We had a couple of conversations on what the goals were and how to structure it. Hmm. And and his edits were often he just helped me kill my babies, which sure. I needed. Yeah, you you you've had these outside readers, but mm-hmm. here's someone who can look at the whole. Yeah, That's great. yeah, and and yeah, I I that was great. Very quick process, and then it turned out. By the way, I got to add the copy editor on mm-hmm. on the book um, turned out to be somebody else I'd met in the Jeopardy green room. <laughs> Yes, that's true. India Cooper, who was in the, the Million Dollar Masters tournament at uh, Radio City Music Hall, um, which was a great experience, by the way. Jeopardy calls me up out of the blue one day and says, uh, "Hey, I, I know you think you're do- we're done with you, but we're not. Um, we were we're gonna. How would you feel? We'd like to fly you first class to New York City, put you up at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, and you and fourteen of our other best players from the history of the show will play for a million dollars. Are you in?" And I, I actually did the comedic. I looked at the phone, like I was just waking up, and I you actually turned to the camera in your home. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually did that, and I was like, um, yeah. And India was one of the other players, and That's she was nice. the copy editor on this book. Fantastic! What a small world. Yeah. So uh, that's a riot. Yeah. Um, the book is the International Bank of Bob, uh, Bob Harris, and visit bobharris.com. Also, before you go. Um, tell us what you are reading these days, what you're watching on television, what's mm. getting you inspired or excited to write. Uh, aside from the thrilling adventure hour. Sure. I mean, that's a given. <laughs> that's a given. I, uh, what am I, what am I watching and reading these days? I, honestly, the, a, a book is, has become an all consuming thing. Um, you know, trying to, trying to, to, to write something like this. Um, yeah, God, what have I been, what have I been looking at? Um, I've got, there's, it's a lot of stuff where, I have to take a break here. I got to come up with a good answer for you on this. <laughs> Think about Honestly. it. Honestly, the truth is, I haven't been. The last time I went to go see a movie was Dubai. I was. It was. Uh, with the, what did um, you see in Dubai? Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. <laughs> Naturally. Was, naturally. It's what it's what you would see in the United <laughs> Arab Emirates. Um, but, yeah, that was the last time I've been to see a movie. That's right. I think. Mo- movies are terrible. Oh, no, no, no. I saw, movies, I saw Moonrise Kingdom. I saw Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, that's good. But that was it. That was last summer. That's the last time I've been to a movie. I haven't actually sat down to watch an episode of television. I saw a, a community a few weeks ago, but I haven't actually watched episodic television since... Um, I, the last episode of House was the last thing I sat down oh to watch, God. except for like, a, a, oh no 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 no! I watched a couple of Thirty Rocks, um, but that went off the air. Um, I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to. Yeah. to uh, I've just been working on on the book, and then there's all the promo and all the other stuff right. you got to do. Um, but it seems like the book really was all consuming. Yeah, uh, that's that's fascinating. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I mean, when you were traveling, though it is work, 
did you bring something to read with you or was it just you know talking to the people having the experiences coming back transcribing what you could no i never brought anything with me i want i wanted to keep um the experiences as fresh as i could yeah in fact, I would I would read enough about the country. I would only, I would read maybe one or two books tops in advance because I didn't want to have my perceptions formed by somebody else's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I felt that I would be doing a disservice if I didn't know the history of a place better. I mean, if I had a sense of it, I'd, I'd, it was kind of a seat of the pants call. Um, and then I would do a lot of reading afterwards to try to contextualize. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to to have my hands empty so I had to pick up something local even if I didn't speak the language. Um, you can learn a lot even if you don't speak the language just by looking at the pictures and kind of thinking a little bit. Uh, the in-flight magazine, for example, when I was flying into Bosnia um, on the uh, Bosnia B&H Airlines, the Bosnian National Carrier, which has five planes, and uh, the one I was on was almost completely empty. Uh, and so I'm, I'm on this, this empty plane flying into what turned out to be an empty airport. Uh, Sarajevo is not fully integrated with the rest of, of, of Europe, it turns out. Um, I mean, it is, but it, it, was, it was really a ghost trip when I was there. It was bizarre. I have photos of, like, this empty plane that I was on. And um, so I had to pick up the in-flight magazine. And you pick up the in-flight magazine. And even, you know, Bosnian is completely impenetrable to me. But you quickly noticed that multinational brands were not visible, that um, there was no – everything was a local business in Sarajevo, everything being advertised. And that tells you something about the local economy. It tells you about how maybe integrated that is with the, the rest of the – sorry, with the rest of the, uh, the, the European commerce. It tells you a little bit about some of the isolation of the place. Um, and also the stuff that was being advertised in the magazine was um, – it was it was primarily – I mean, there were a couple of ads for, like, luxury watches and stuff like that. But when you pick up an in-flight magazine on most planes, you know, it's like things you throw money away on, right? right? It's like, you know, really fancy suits and stuff like this. And most of these things were just – it was an ad for a bar or it was an ad for, a, a, a you know, a, a men's tailor or some guy. It was like local stuff. And, okay, so I'm getting a sense before I'm even landing just because I'm looking at the magazine. I don't speak Bosnian, but I'm getting a feeling of, wow, they're still really recovering from the war just from the in-flight magazine. So, um, and that turned out to be the case. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I always travel with my hands empty. I I travel as light as I can humanly travel. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend this. In fact, Google Bob Harris Kiva travel, and you'll find a set of travel tips somewhere. (laughs) I haven't checked a bag in years, mm-hmm. I, I, if I can avoid it. I, I, the, all of the round-the-world travel was always done with a backpack and a camera bag. And that's it. That way I'm not going to lose the luggage, and I have to. I am compelled to pick up the local newspapers, to pick up local goods, mm-hmm. to actually be present where I'm going. And um, uh, I can't imagine traveling any other way now. That's great advice. Uh, and great book. Uh, again, International Bank of Bob. Everyone should check it out. It's great. And there's a, a little coupon in the back that uh, people yes. can give to Kiva uh, for free for their first time, right? Uh, first time users. Yeah, there's a, the website is uh, it's kiva.org slash bank of Bob. And uh, while supplies last, because supplies it is limited, last, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, if you go there and you have you, uh, it's your first time to the site. Your very first loan is a, a twenty-five dollar free trial. You scroll through the site, you find some small mom and pop business somewhere that you want to support, and uh, some friend of Kiva, some donor somewhere, has already fronted the money. Mm-hmm. So you just point, click, and go help that guy in uh, uh, Nicaragua. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really cool. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Jeez, this is great. I, I look forward to having you back after you've watched all the Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's I, about I, to happen. I want to see that. I I, I actually have that. You know what? That's on my short list. It really it has is. To be. I used to know Bob Odenkirk in Chicago a long time ago. Oh and, yeah, he and, was at the signing the other day. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. at the signing the other day, and he comes up and he he, he tweeted the whole thing, and I've heard nothing but.
but good stuff. <laughs> and and I really want to see it. So yes, I'll uh, have me back on after I've seen Breaking Bad. <laughs> and you know what? After some of the like places I've been and everything, after after what I've been through, sure. some of the places I've been, <laughs> I'll just come back from seeing Breaking Bad. It's like yeah, whatever. Exactly. No, I'm sure it's fantastic. I can't that wait was to a see hilarious it. Hilarious romp. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> thank you, Bob. Hey, thank you, Ben. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com. 